the case is closed on their end, but it's back in the hands of the county sheriff, Kalamazoo County Sheriff, to get a couple of things that they need to finish the case. And then they let us know that if the mis- a mistake wasn't made by the Kalamazoo County Prosecutor's Office over the years, that several years ago this entire group of suspects would have been in prison, yeah. all of them. And they did say they actually have enough right now to go to court to arrest, to prosecute, but they want to make sure that there's no issue when it comes to a jury making a decision. So this case is that close. And again, now we're in year 37. On June 26, it will be 37 years since they murdered Eric Cross. Hello and welcome to Crime Valley. In today's episode, I'll be discussing a 1983 murder case from Michigan. This case has had many twists and turns, and although it remains open, there is great hope that it will be prosecuted in the very near future. I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time talking to a lady involved with the case, and her name is Missy Hatfield. You will hear my interview with Missy threaded throughout this episode. It was Saturday the 25th of June. The year was 1983. Electric Avenue Every Breath You Take and David Bowie's Let's Dance were all top of the Billboard charts. At the movies, Superman 3, Staying Alive and Star Wars Return of the Jedi were playing for the summer crowds. And in news and events, Space Shuttle Challenger is launched on its maiden voyage, Microsoft Word is released and Ethiopia is facing large-scale food shortages after years of civil war and drought. In Kalamazoo County, Michigan, in the town of Vicksburg, 16-year-old Eric Cross was getting ready to attend a graduation party. Eric's little sister Jackie remembers watching him brush his hair as the song The Look of Love played on the radio. Neither Eric nor Jackie were aware that these would be their last few moments together. I'm sure that everyone listening has heard of a multitude of cold cases which are still waiting to see closure. The families and friends of these victims have had their grief, anxiety and pain drawn out for years while they wait for justice and hopefully the answers that come with it. For Jackie though, the wait would consume part of her childhood and stretch on for decades after that. Jackie's father had passed away in 2007 and now the legacy that was finding closure and justice for Eric was left to Jackie and her mother Mary Lou. In 2010, Jackie had an idea. Why not set up a Facebook page for her brother? It would be a place for those who had known and loved Eric to share their happy memories of him. 
a place to be nostalgic and remember happier times. Eric's new Facebook page received hundreds of follows and soon the questions began. People who had grown up in the town of Vicksburg, Michigan, many of whom were now in their 40s, were shocked. Eric's case was still unsolved. How was that possible? Everyone knew who did it. These adults looked back on their teenage memories from the summer of 1983. They remembered that after Eric's death, the whole town was abuzz with talk. You certainly could not have gone back to Vicksburg High after the summer break and not heard all about Eric, the party and the group of teens who now walked the hallways as if nothing had happened that June. As if nothing had happened at all. Eric Sterling Cross was born on the 25th of September 1966 in Flint, Michigan. Eric was the first born to Ted and Mary Lou Cross and within four years Eric became a big brother to a sister named Jackie. The Cross family was complete and for the next 12 years they were content. Their family unit was a close one. You only need to look at family photos to see that. There are pictures of sheer happiness on Christmas morning of holidays by the lake and of teenagers cuddling family pets. And perhaps the most telling photos are those that show Eric and Jackie being cheeky and hamming it up for the camera while a tolerant Ted looks on. In the autumn of 1982, Eric and his family had moved from Grand Blank, Michigan to Vicksburg, Michigan. Ted's job had been the reason for the move and the Cross family settled into a comfortable family home on East Y Drive. Eric started at Vicksburg High School as a sophomore. Eric was described as friendly, an outdoorsy teenager who just wanted to make new friends. He soon bonded with another sophomore by the name of Bill Cook. Bill was dating a girl by the name of Maybrit Spaulding, and Maybrit had an older brother named Brent, who was a senior at the time of Eric's move. Brent Spaulding was dating a sophomore named Amber Thomas, as Eric and Bill started to spend more time together, Eric was exposed more and more to Bill's circle of friends. While Amber was quite popular, Brent was seen as someone to avoid. Rumour had it that he was a bully who could make your life difficult if you crossed him. Instances where Eric was bullied and picked on by Brent and shoved into the pop machines. And there was another situation where I witnessed it. Um, and first thing in the morning, I, would, I was coming out of one class on, in an upstairs hallway because uh, we had four hallways. Um, there'd be 100, 200, 300, and 400 hallways. So I was in the 200 hallway, which is uh, the f closest to the parking lot, closest to the school office, um, coming out of class after the end of first hour. And all of a sudden there's this fight in the hallway to the point where my I remember my, my teacher actually putting me, pushing me, me and a couple other people back and said, stay here or get back in the classroom because they were trying to keep us from getting hurt. And there was these boys wrestling and somebody had jumped another guy. And after they, these three male teachers kind of pulled people off of each other, it was Brent on top of Eric again. And, you know, we're like, what just happened here? And 
um, someone said, well, Amber and Brent, Amber and um, Eric had this class together, and they were walking out of the classroom, and Brent was already in the hallway, and he saw them just, you know, a couple of kids in a class talking and just joking about whatever, you know, something simple. Uh, it wasn't like this in deep conversation or something that he walked up on. Um, and there were other kids involved in the conversation, but that was enough to trigger Brent to attack Eric as usual, and he attacked him, and it took these other male teachers to pull him off of Eric. And that was another situation with bullying. And then there was another situation where back in 1983, we had what was called a smoker's pit. In, like, 85, they obviously banned that, removed that, and you couldn't do that anymore. But in 1983, there was a smoker's pit. And what that was was if you were in high school and you smoked, you could walk across the parking lot out past the tennis courts, and there was just this little tiny gravel area under the trees and you could smoke there and then come back to, to come back from lunch or whatever. But it was like lunchtime is the only time typically people would be there. And Eric went to walk out there one day because his friend Bill, he was looking for him, and, and they said, hey, you know, he's out there. So he went out to the smoker's pit, and there were a bunch of guys there always, and Brent was one of them. And um, when Eric walked up, Brent just started just harassing him and, you know, calling him a lot of derogatory words that, people use to describe um n you know nowadays they wouldn't totally be unacceptable back then they were just thrown around like anything else and they were words that you would describe uh and someone from the lgbtq community and um a couple of guys stepped in and said you know what leave him alone he's not hurting you he just wants to come out and hang out with his friends he's trying to make friends and i was really proud after when I've talked to the guys that were actually involved in this situation, because they took, they stood up for him. And a lot of people, a lot of guys did stand up to him, to Brent about Eric, because they're like, he's the new kid, leave him alone. He's just trying to fit in and find his niche, you know, and these guys stopped Brent from harassing him. But Bill Cook was with Brent at that time too. And Bill didn't do anything. When school finished and the summer holidays rolled around, one of the main events for the students of Vicksburg High School was a graduation party that was being held on Saturday, June the 25th. Kids from far and wide wanted to attend that party and age didn't seem to be much of a factor. The keg party was being held at a lake house that was less than a mile from Eric's home. Ted and Mary Lou had no idea that Eric had made plans to go. It was not something that they would have allowed being that Eric was only 16. That night, while others in the town of Vicksburg were winding down for the evening, a group of 300-plus teenagers was attending the much-anticipated keg party. $2 must have seemed like a small price to pay for a night of alcohol and fun. The night rolled on and in the early morning hours of Sunday the 26th, Ted Cross was briefly roused from his sleep when he heard the front door rattle. Still half asleep, Ted looked at the time on his alarm clock and realised that it must be Eric letting himself in the house. The next morning, Ted and Mary Lou were awoken around 5am to the sound of a car. The car was loud, it sounded like there was something wrong with the muffler. The car pulled into their driveway and reversed out before driving away. A short time later, the car was again heard driving back past the Cross residence. 
At around 5.30am, Ted decided to go outside and collect his morning paper. As Ted walked towards the end of his driveway, he noticed something lying on the grass close to the road. It must have taken him a few seconds to comprehend that the object was Eric's white Nike sneaker. As Ted continued towards the road, he saw something truly horrendous and incomprehensible. Eric's body lay on the roadway, battered and unmoving. Ted raced inside calling for Mary Lou to come and help. Mary Lou ran outside and saw her son before running back inside and getting a blanket to cover Eric. A neighbour who worked at the local hospital was called to help. The neighbour attempted to perform CPR on Eric, but he knew that his efforts were in vain. But for the sake of Ted and Mary Lou, he tried anyway. Police were called from the Kalamazoo Sheriff's Department, which was a good half an hour away. Surprisingly, the police arrived quite quickly. In fact, they were already on their way when they received the frantic calls for help from Eric's parents and their neighbours. A mystery caller had already notified the police to the presence of Eric's body on the road. There was an actual phone call to the Kalamazoo County Sheriff's Office before the calls all started coming in. So someone had seen that, called it in. Back then, you didn't, you didn't, I don't even, we didn't even have 911, I don't think. We just had to call the actual Sheriff's Office in Kalamazoo. And we're out in Vicksburg. That's like 40 minutes away, 30 minutes away, at least. Um, So... They had a call early that said, there's a boy that's been dumped. So someone took the time to call, and then all of a sudden, here comes a bunch of calls. Because then it was like all the neighbors calling for help. So someone knows, either maybe the court crew decided to turn it into the sheriff so that his body was found. For over 100 metres, there was blood and tissue trailed down the road, interspersed with a scattered collection of shoes, clothing and even a wallet. Amongst all the carnage was plastic car parts, including pieces of a broken tail light. Incredibly, through all of the shock and grief that must have been consuming Ted Cross, he had the foresight to request something that was way ahead of his time, something that could have repercussions decades later. And what about that car? The one with the loud muffler that had been heard outside at 5am? Was that vehicle involved in the hit and run? And if it wasn't, why had the car's occupants not gotten out to assist Eric? Even in the pre-dawn darkness, they could hardly have missed him or his scattered belongings. But regardless of what had happened, the end result was that a young, vibrant, healthy 16-year-old boy had lost his life. His family had been torn apart and the village of Vicksburg would be left to speculate. We know that Eric made it home. His father heard him attempting to let himself in via the front door. The question is, how did Eric arrive home and end up dead on the side of the road outside his home only hours later? Eric was close enough to his sister that he could easily have tapped on her bedroom window and have been let inside, with his parents being none the wiser. If, in his drunken state, he was bold enough to try the front door and alert his parents, surely the back door would have been his next option. There is a story which Jackie shared on a blog page created for Eric. 
The story went that Jackie and her parents had gone away overnight, leaving 16-year-old Eric at home alone. Upon their return, Eric was nowhere to be found, but there was a note. The note informed his family that he had run away from home because he had been involved in a small fender bender in his father's car, the car that he wasn't meant to be driving. Jackie remembered feeling sad and a great sense of loss that her brother had left. While her parents worried about what to do next, Jackie looked out of the window and into the backyard. In front of the empty fields where Eric would often ride his dirt bike was a tent. The tent wasn't unusual, but the sight of Eric's dog sniffing around it certainly was. Jackie snuck outside and found Eric hiding in the tent. Being the good sister that she was and wanting to show allegiance to her big brother, Jackie went back inside the house. Mary Lou noticed that Jackie's mood had drastically improved, but still, Jackie kept silent. When their parents finally discovered the truth, I think that relief was their dominant emotion, and everything else probably seemed pretty insignificant. This happened about a month before Eric died. To me, this anecdote shows that Eric knew that he could trust his sister. If he had have needed to knock on her window that night, even in his inebriated state, he must have known that Jackie would have covered for him. This story also highlights the fact that Eric was so young and still just a kid. When police started to piece together a timeline, it was confirmed that a man delivering papers in the early hours of Sunday morning had not seen Eric's body or his belongings as he did his rounds. This narrowed down the time frame in which Eric's body could have been present on the roadway. A neighbour of the Cross family had a very interesting tale to tell. The neighbour reported that he had seen a car drive past his house at around the time that Ted and Mary Lou had awoken to the sound of the car with the loud muffler. As he stood in his yard, he saw a dark car with a loud muffler drive past. In the car, he saw two males and a female sitting between them in the front seat. As they went by, he heard a voice that sounded like a female scream, Oh my God, I think he's seen us. Police soon realised that their first assessment of a hit and run was incorrect. They now believe that Eric had most likely been tied to the back of a car and dragged behind it, before being run over to make it look like a hit and run, thus concealing the initial crime. After an autopsy was performed on Eric's body, the results only confirmed that Eric's death had been no accident. Upon examination, his body was found to be covered in lacerations, including a large, gaping wound in the middle of his lower back. Eric's wrists and torso had been tied with rope. His skin was marked with striations and he had multiple leg fractures. It was also believed that Eric may have sustained a severe beating. Police needed to find out what had occurred at that keg party on Kimball Lake Drive. Perhaps, understandably, a lot of the partygoers did not want to come forward. Most of the attendees had been underage and the prospect of being exposed to law enforcement and the wrath of their parents was not a pleasant prospect. But, as is often the case, the truth will out. The difficulty for law enforcement was that the truth was heavily intermingled with rumour, speculation and outright lies. Tales of hood surfing and guns used to commit murder in a dentist office were intertwined with talk of a reputed town bully and an altercation that was said to have occurred between him and Eric at that party on the lake. 
It is human nature to talk, though. Recollection and idle gossip intertwined to form a strange mixture of truth and fiction. It would be up to the police to separate the two. What we do know is that Eric attended the party that night before leaving around 1am. He drank a lot of beer and became extremely intoxicated. We also know that when Eric left the party, he was seen by multiple witnesses to be heading in the direction of his family home. Witnesses recalled that Eric was stumbling and falling as he walked, at times leaning against the cars of partygoers which lined the neighbouring roads. It wasn't a long walk perhaps only 15 minutes at a steady pace. But in his inebriated state, it would have taken Eric a lot longer. The rural area was sparsely dotted with homes, and is so often the case on country roads, street lights were few and far between. At times, a full moon would have been all that lit Eric's path home. There were other witnesses, people who were leaving the party and heading to their cars. Some of them noticed Eric as he walked by the local corner store. Ma and Pa's was a small gas station and convenience store, situated only a few minutes' walk from Eric's home. In the early morning of June 26th, Ma and Pa's was well and truly closed, but still two cars were observed to be parked there. One car was yellow while the other was a dark, medium-sized sedan. An altercation between Eric and a person belonging to one of those two vehicles was seen to occur. After that, we know that Eric made it home briefly before disappearing from his front yard. You may be wondering about the boy named Bill Cook who Eric had befriended at school. Well, Bill was at the party that night, but as far as Ted and Mary Lou Cross were concerned, Eric was safe at Bill's house attending a prearranged sleepover. The next day, Ted was going to be taking Eric and Bill to a boat show over three hours away in Detroit. The boys were meant to be meeting Ted at the Cross family home the next morning. So what happened? Why did Eric leave the party alone? Why didn't he stay with Bill when he was meant to be sleeping at his friend's house that night? Well, according to Bill, he was with Eric at the keg party. At some point, Bill went for a swim with a girl, leaving Eric alone in a lawn chair. When he returned from his swim in the lake... Eric was gone. On the face of things, you could hardly blame Bill. We have to remember that we're talking about 1983. Bill would have had no way to reach Eric at that time of night. So it would be quite logical to assume that Eric had decided to head home and sleep in his own bed. The only reasonable thing that Bill could have done was wait until the next morning and either call Eric or turn up at the Cross family home for the prearranged Detroit outing. The next day, Bill did neither of those things. It's interesting to note that Bill didn't go home that night. Instead, he stayed at the Spalding family home. It was perhaps a touch ironic that instead of spending the night with the boy he proclaimed to be his best friend, Bill instead spent the night at the home of Eric's bully. Brent, May Britt and Amber were all at the party along with Bill and Eric. Multiple people were talking about the fact that the altercation at the party was between Eric and Brent. It was said that Brent, and possibly Eric, had been ejected from the party when other boys had to step in and split them up. 
It was also said that Amber and Eric had been flirting at the keg party. Brent Spalding was known to have a volatile temperament and had taken issue with Eric talking to Amber in the past. Could this be the reason for the driveway altercation that the party goers had witnessed? Yeah, he was telling other kids and stuff. Yeah, because kids knew, like, I, there was some kind of an accident. Somebody got hurt. Nobody knew literally what happened yet. No. Except for Bill Cook. Well, how does Bill Cook know that? How did Bill Cook not think to call Eric and say, hey, are you okay? Did you make it home all right? He didn't call and check on his friend. He didn't call and say, um, hey, are we still going to the boat show? Or are you mad at me because I ditched you? He didn't make a call. How come he didn't make a call? Because he already knew what had happened. He knew Eric wasn't home. He knew Eric wasn't going to go anywhere that day because he knew Eric was dead. Thank you.